With the collapse of the Soviet Union two decades ago, newly free people from the Baltics to the Hindu Kush are reasserting their own national identities. Now they're developing their own individual economic strategies for surviving and perhaps even thriving in the 21st century. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we examine how nations that used to look to the Soviet Union for guidance are finding their own way in the world. Three of my tour guide friends from Slovenia, Hungary, and the Czech Republic will update us on the issues their countries are dealing with as the newest members of the European Union. And Lonely Planet guidebook author Michael Cohn will take us on a spin through the Central and Southwest Asian republics. These intriguing places, while challenging to visit, can be richly rewarding. We're exploring the new face of Europe and the former Soviet stands. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Remnants of the old Soviet empire are charting their own futures. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an update on how ex-communist nations from Hungary to Tajikistan are handling their independence. And we'll find out why more Westerners than ever are happily enduring the headaches that come with traveling there to enjoy the splendor of Central Asia. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today I want to check in with the new Europe. Uh, of course, uh, there's the old Europe that most of us are well aware of, and in Maine, 2004, a whole bunch of new countries joined the European Union, most of them the former Warsaw Pact nations, and uh, created what a lot of people call the new Europe. I have with me today friends and guides from Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovenia, and we'll check out what's the latest. Uh, is it a time of hope? Is it a time of frustration? What are the challenges? And so on. I have with me Hansa Vihan from the Czech Republic, Levante Naj from Hungary, and Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia. Thanks very much for joining me, guys. Thank you for Thank having you. us. I guess the, um, the honeymoon period is over. I mean, it's been a couple of years now since you've joined the EU, just settling in. What are the pros and cons after a few years in the EU, just in a nutshell, from your, your countries? What's the, the latest? Uh, Levante in, in Hungary, how are people feeling about being part of this vast free trade zone of 400 million people uh, trying to get along together? Uh, first, I'd like to make a point uh, saying that uh, all of these countries have always been part of Europe and a very integral part of Europe for centuries. So it's nothing new for us to be part of Europe again, so to speak. Uh, there are lots of challenges, obviously. A lot of them are, are the standards that we have to bring our countries up to. Just little annoyances that a lot of the Hungarians um, are a little bit reluctant to live up to the expectations of the West, I guess. And, yeah, it's growing pains. It's going to take a while. Marianne in Slovenia. Well, the usual um, advantages and disadvantages, uh, I mean, on short term, it's mainly disadvantages. Of course, uh, meeting those standards, changing your inner policy, giving away part of this uh, uh, nation's sovereignty to Brussels, conformity with the European integration process. So it mainly reflects, of course, um, economics, everyday things, all down to, yes, not selling crooked cucumbers in the marketplace. So a lot of little annoying things. But on the long term, there is uh, no other way for Europe than 
Because fundamentally, for Europe to mean anything, people have to give away sovereignty. If you don't give away sovereignty, Europe really can't function. So this is kind of a dance that's been going on for a long time. It is, but it's uh, quite exciting to witness it and also to compare it kind of to the process that uh, the United States was going through when it was in the making. That's a good parallel. Uh, Hansa from Czech Republic, any thoughts? From our perspective, it was mainly positives. The economy is growing in the Czech Republic and since joining more that it has grown since uh, the changes in 1989. It's because there is a lot of uh, new investment into the country because now it's a free trade zone with uh, Europe. So a lot of places from outside of Europe come and invest in the Czech Republic. So in this sense, in, in, in this sense it was a big positive change. And giving up a certain sovereignty uh, on one hand, where it's quite good is, in fact, in the legal matters, because Europe and its certain standards work as improvement for most of the legal system in the Czech Republic. For example, uh, you have to get your case solved in court in a certain period of time, because that's what the European standards require. But uh, that's not the way that the Czech legal system works. Well, it must have been a Soviet-dominated legal system before Soviet I don't know if it was Soviet-dominated. It was just uh, someone dominated, and uh, <laughs> and it just uh, took for years to get any legal case. It still takes for years, but it's getting better. Is that pretty uh, clear across the board from an Eastern European point of view that the legal system of Europe is an improvement over the, uh, the what you had before? Certainly, yes. I have to agree with that. Yeah, that's in this case. When you think back, I mean, most people celebrate the freedom and the free economy and, and so on, but there's remnants of communism that people are ostalgic about, or that's sort of a, a word the East Germans or the Germans use, ost, nostalgia for the Eastern ways. Is there any ostalgia in your countries? Are there any bits of uh, the communist culture that people are working and will, you think, successfully hold on to as, as good parts of that heritage? Yeah, I think in Hungary, uh, you know, people are uh, reminiscent about the cheap commodities that are not there anymore. Everything was heavily subsidized from food to housing, and that's pretty much gone. And a lot of people, especially the older generation— Older people would lament that. Younger people know it's just not realistic, I suppose. Correct. Yeah. In Slovenia, Marianne? I would say just the general notion of uh, feeling safe, that there was a network to fall back on. Economics. Not, economics. Uh, that's right. Economically, safety. basically not being able to lose your job in any case because everyone had to have a job. Housing, bills, uh, your health care, all of these very basic things were so taken care of. Economic Darwinism is a sort of a new so thing. So, yeah, for these Slovenia. were not things that you would be thinking of before. It's a, it's a sense in the Czech Republic... Uh, under the communist period, in in some ways, we were all on the same uh, on the same level. Uh, no one had too much money. No one had too little money. So I think that that kind of a feeling of uh, egalitarianism, sort of of everyone being sort of mm-hmm. on the same on the same terms, I think that's something that a lot of people are kind of looking back to. And that's a very relative thing. I think you could say there was the what was the norm in Eastern Europe, and then there's the European norm today. And then in the United States, we have a, even a more extreme case in the rich and poor gap, I think. And that's what we think motors our society in a lot of ways. So it's an interesting thing it's, to struggle It's just with. a different, difficult concept, for example, for someone like my father-in-law and his company that he works, that uh, someone in that company makes the same amount of money in one day what the other person makes in a whole year. And that's something yeah. that you just can't understand. Now, 
a couple of decades after the end of communism, there are people that still would be supporters of going back, not very many, I suppose. But what is one way that uh, a communist in your countries would say, I told you so, if you, if you leave communism, this is going to happen to your society. Anything like that going on, I told you so, is by the old communists? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's very um, prevalent in Hungary. Unfortunately, you see a lot of homeless people on the streets, and that's something that we didn't used to have during the socialist communist era. Uh, it's uh, very overt. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK, or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're checking in with the New Europe with friends from Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovenia. And we have Laura on the line from Westfield, Massachusetts. Hi, Laura. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. My pleasure. Um, My family and I are traveling to Prague, the Slovak High Tatras, and Budapest, and with a wide variety of ages from early 30s to late 70s, we were wondering how we can make some plans to um, make hotel accommodations or B&B accommodations well in advance and yet have places to stay that are safe, clean, and perhaps smoke-free, smoke-free ideally. Ooh, smoke-free, that's an issue. That's going to be Okay. And then I also had a second part of the question, which is um, we will be visiting with friends and family, not necessarily being hosted by them, but for the day at least, and we wanted to find ways that were culturally specific to acknowledge them and thank them. Let's talk about that. I'd like to just talk with our panel here about smoke-free and about uh, what an American could bring as a gift for somebody in a small town in, in your countries as a, as a memory, not a, not a gift that says, uh, we've got a lot of money here, a little person have, a, have some money or something, but really a, a nice souvenir from America. What about smoke-free, first of all? What's the status? Good luck. So in Hungary, good luck. It's going to be smoky, especially in the small towns. Yes, they try to enforce the laws, um, and they try to uh, shift towards non-smoking. But it's going to take a while, so you have to be somewhat uh, open-minded on that. Uh, Slovenia is taking the the example of many other European countries at the moment. So in the near future, uh, all the restaurants and public facilities and so on should become completely smoke-free areas. So Slovenia is a little more progressive about this, and, and you're a little more enthusiastic about embracing the European norms, and much of Europe is going smoke-free. Yes. Hansa, in Czech Republic? Uh, I don't think the s- uh, smoking really affects that much accommodations. I don't think any any people I know were complaining that being an issue in a hotel. Uh, when it comes to restaurants, it, uh, there is a policy in the Czech Republic that uh, during uh, meal times there is no smoking. So during uh, meal times, and then later on, times, when it's the drinking time, uh, when is the drinking time, and meal times are usually uh, from about twelve to three in the afternoon, not in the evening. Okay, I'd like to say also that in Hungary there are laws against uh, smoking in certain locations, but it's not always enforced, and okay. so you have to be somewhat uh, open-minded. All right, and let's say Laura is going to be visiting a relative in any of your countries in a small town they've never met an American. What would be a fun thing to bring from the United States? Peanut butter. <laughs> because they've never had it before. Peanut butter in Czech Republic. I, I don't know. I think something specific from from where she's from, uh, something local. Like a, a football jersey maybe uh, from uh, her Perhaps, town or, or, or something like uh, something she could find a local market, a farmer's market that, that uh, maybe something blueberries or something that doesn't really, it's not very com- common in Hungary. And Marianne in Slovenia. I would agree to say maybe some uh, T-shirt with, with, a, with a local football team or something, something unique from the area that would, yeah. All right. Laura, does that give you some ideas? It does. Thank you so much. Good luck on your trip. Thanks. Emily in Glendale Heights, Illinois. Emily, thanks for your call. Thanks for taking my call, Rick. I'm such a fan. Do you have any comments or questions for our guys here? Yeah. I traveled last summer on my first um, European adventure, and I'm thinking of traveling in Eastern Europe 
as a single person uh, and as a woman is that faith? Good question. Uh, single American woman uh, exploring uh, the back streets, the big cities in your countries. Uh, what are the pitfalls? What is, what's some advice? I think it's completely safe. I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry about uh, their safe cities in the middle of the city, whether it's Prague or whether it's Budapest. There's a lot of people around. You know, Emily, I'm seeing everybody here going. No, what, what's the big deal? I, I really think you're, it's more dangerous in Paris or Madrid or London or Washington or Detroit than it is any any of these cities in Eastern Europe. You're likely to get ripped off by a cabbie or pickpocketed by somebody, but you're not going to be uh, followed and mugged in the dark. No, absolutely no problem. Everybody agreed? Good. Hey, you got the okay there, Emily. Ah, good. Thanks. I will travel again with Rick Steve. Have a good time. Let us know how your trip goes. Thanks. You know, I really feel the same thing when I'm in Eastern Europe. It's like, uh, I don't know if it's a remnant of your communist days or something, but it's just, there's a lot of um, corruption, I think, that's left over, and there's a lot of petty purse snatching and so on, but I don't feel there's a lot of violent crime. Statistically, is that true? compared to other countries? I can only speak for Hungary, but I, uh, it seems like the criminals tend to settle the differences amongst themselves, and yeah. they don't meddle with uh, tourists. It'd be a little different maybe in Russia. Perhaps. Yeah. There's more with Marianne, Hansa, and Levante coming right up as we look at the realities of everyday life for the newest members of the European Union. And, a little later in the hour, we'll focus our attention on what's happening in the former Soviet stands. You're traveling with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Seven seven three 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 Rick and radio at ricksteves.com. You can continue this discussion online in the message boards in the radio section of ricksteves.com. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're checking in with the newest members of the European Union. Our guests are Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia, Hansa Vihan from the Czech Republic, and Lavante Nash from Hungary. And later this hour, we'll contrast the new Europe with developments in the new Asia by taking a look at the stands, the mostly Muslim republics which used to be part of the Soviet Union. Uh, Kathleen in Linwood, Washington, thanks for your call. 
Hi, thanks for having us on. Um, I was wondering about the possibility of employment in the Czech Republic, and I work as a nurse here in the States. What about that, uh, Hunter? Can Americans get a job in Czech Republic? Uh, I don't know exactly on the regulations that apply to citizens of non-European Union countries, but uh, if you would like to work as a nurse in the Czech Republic, you just need to be warned that uh, nurses, in fact, get one of the lowest uh, salaries. So it's something that would be great to do, to live there and have a chance to experience the culture, but uh, get ready that uh, even relatively to other jobs in the Czech Republic, you'll be making much less money. Okay. And Czechs make less money anyways, I think, than what we might be used to here. Uh, Czechs make uh, less money uh, anyway, but even with, within that range, uh, nurses are below the average pay. Does that answer the question, or was it more kind of an issue yes. whether as a American you can get a job in the Czech Republic? Well, I guess what the protocol would be for getting any kind of job. My husband works in computers, and I understand that might be a, a better line of work to have there. It's it's easier. You have more more independence, but uh, it it really goes case by case. If you if you get in touch with someone and they want to employ you, I think there is definitely a way to do it. Kathleen, good luck with your um, with your vision there. Okay, thank you. All so right, much. bye now. Bye. We're talking with Hansa Vihen from Czech Republic and Marian Kuskovic from Slovenia and Levant Denage from Hungary. When I was studying Eastern European studies, my professor told me in Eastern Europe. They say, my neighbor's neighbor is my friend. Have you heard of that comment before, and what does oh, that mean yes. to you? I, this is Laventa from Hungary. I can, I can tell you this, that um, Poland and Hungary, and Polish people and Hungarians, definitely have a mutual uh, friendship. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we're never really neighbors. We always had Slovakia, Czechoslovakia in between as a buffer zone. And so we fought pretty much everybody around us except for the Poles. And so even today when I meet Poles here in the U.S. or anywhere else, they get really ecstatic about me being Hungarian and likewise. So you're not neighbors, you're neighbors' neighbors, and therefore Hungarians and Poles have an affinity. That's, that's you, right. You've fought a lot of the same people over the Correct. centuries. Correct. Uh, Marian from Slovenia. Well, I think that saying would, would go definitely for most European countries, not just, it wouldn't be limited just to Eastern Europe. Maybe Slovenia would be somewhat of an exception there, the, again, our history doesn't really show much fighting, violence, and so against our neighbors. Of course, there are the usual smaller squabbles occasionally, but Slovenians seem to be pretty fine with uh, pretty much everyone throughout their history. Well, that's right. In Slovenia, I understand you, you guys are not very good at cursing. That's right. And uh, well, well, If you really wanted to get mad at me, what would you say? Well, I would say probably... Um, 300 hairy bears, or if I would want to get really, really personal, I could say, may you be kicked by a chicken. Really? So tell me that in Slovenian as angrily as you can. Tristokosmatich. <laughs> what, what was that? What did you just say? It was 300 hairy bears. You, you drop a beautiful vase, a wonderful vase your, your, your daughter made for you, and it breaks into 100 pieces. What are you going to say? Tristokosmatich. Tristokosmatich. And then tell me the one about chicken, or what was that again? Nete kuklia burtsne. May you be kicked by a chicken. And if you want to get really vulgar and really more angry than that. No, I, I think I kind of exhausted <laughs> See, all there is. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of it. <laughs> we, we, we would, I guess, you, you could get more vulgar by borrowing words from other languages. So from our neighbors, with, which we love. So Austrians, Italians, whomever. In your um, language, even got, if you don't speak right. Italian, you would understand the curses. Integrate in that uh, chapter of our language a lot of uh, 
foreign expressions, which offer plenty of possibilities for any occasion. Slovenia, <laughs> a country which is your most popular uh, dance is the polka, and the most violent curse is 300 hairy bears. That's right. uh, how about from Hungary and Czech Republic? Any other ideas on cursing? There's a lot of cursing going on in Hungary, unfortunately, and <laughs> we don't have to borrow from any other language. But I tell you this, though, it's much easier to curse in somebody else's language. It just doesn't come across as rude than your own. So I sometimes resort to saying uh, uh, words in other languages. Beep, beep. <laughs> 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 and on, uh, in the Czech Republic, if you're, if you're really upset verbally, what do you do? I think they're also very sensitive with the language that... Uh, our own language, it, uh, the curse is just, it's really difficult sometimes to get it out of your mouth. Really? Meanwhile, in a different language, it's, you can say whatever you want, so and you would we know don't it. feel it. It just, it really, you have that kind of a feeling like it, it just, you just can't do it. Do Eastern Europeans, um, and uh, forgive me for saying Eastern Europeans, I'm talking to an American audience, all of you, I'm sure, think of yourself as Central Europeans Correct. rather than yes. Eastern Europeans. I, th and I think about myself as Eastern European. You do? Yeah. All right. Why is that? I, I feel it's sort of uh, I'm sort of centric. If I'm calling, I'm a center of anything. It's uh, oh, so that's just your own personal thing. I, you don't want to be centric. But I also think that uh, I think that what we share, it's true. It's uh, it's it, whether you call it Central Europe or Eastern Europe, it really goes back to what we share in common. And one thing is uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the other thing is the 40 years of communism. So you got for the good or bad, it just made us share something that. Uh, we feel more connection in many ways between each other here than we would feel of people in the same generation in Germany. So that's a, a modern thing, the iron, what we call the Iron Curtain, dividing Europe between East and West. During the Habsburg Empire, all of you are part of the Habsburg Empire, that would be Central Europe, really. But I think you're um, Mongolian in the case of Hungary or you're Slavic in the case of uh, the other two countries' heritage. That's Relative to Europe, it feels a little more Eastern, I guess, and exotic. So for simplicity, we talk about Eastern Europeans. Do the new 10 members or whatever that join the EU, do you feel like second-class citizens compared to the Western big shots that were there first? Are you treated that way? Is there any problem that way? Um, of course, in many ways. There are many concerns of, let's say, Western Europeans and the older member, EU member states, especially over the influx of uh, cheap labor force from the East, where uh, most of these 10 new countries, and of course, two more joined uh, Bulgaria and Romania, so it'll be 12 new members just in the last couple of years. Um, yes, there is concern that there'll be this big influx of people and taking away your jobs and security and so on, uh, affecting your culture. Immigration is a big issue there. And uh, most countries, in fact, imposed restrictions on immigration, even though we are in the same union and uh, working and so on. Even so, it's been dealt with in uh, transitional periods. And in fact, all those prejudices have been proven mainly wrong, and most of those countries have already dropped their restrictions, and things are coming to normal, so everyone is adjusting to this thought of a larger Europe and looking forward to what we're going to do in our future. So with time, Eastern Europe will earn its place at the table, even for skeptics in the West. That's right. Peter in Qualicum Beach, British Columbia. Hi, Peter. Thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Uh, do you have some ideas about uh, traveling in Eastern Europe that you'd like to share with our panel? Quite a few, but we'll only share a couple. Um, right. We live in a, in a country that uh, learns to, to get along with our neighbor. We have a great neighbor to the south, and I can really relate to all the conversation today 
I think it's wonderful how Eastern Europe, we're going to visit in another couple months, and I think it's just absolutely wonderful how the people that you've been speaking to are uh, really progressing forward. I don't think that any of us can go backward. I think we're all citizens of the world now, for better or for worse. And I think we can all keep our identity and still travel and visit people and uh, work in each other's countries. I, I just think it's been a fascinating uh, fascinating topic. And uh, I want to invite you up here, Rick, because you can have a nice rest. We live in a little oasis on Vancouver Island, and uh, when things get too hectic, <laughs> you can come up and visit us. Oh, Peter from Qualicum Beach, British Columbia. I To me, you speak like a, a Canadian, and that's why I really love to have Canada just over our border, reminding us how beautiful this world is and how we can communicate together and uh, live together and have a great future. Vancouver Island is indeed a great place to have for a hideaway. Yeah, and we visit each other a lot. We come down to Washington a lot. Good. Peter, well, happy travels, and and thanks for that that beautiful comment. Okay, now our little question. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to uh, eight countries in Central Europe, and we're wondering... Um, can we use visa? We're going to the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, uh, Croatia, Slovenia, all these countries. And uh, we're wondering, can we use uh, visa? Can we use um, euros now? Well, each of these guys are tour guides. That means they're taking uh, Americans, Canadians around through all the different countries in Eastern Europe. Let's talk about that. In your experience, uh, guys, what are what are the uh, frustrations for Americans with their credit cards? Which ones are most widely accepted and so on? No problem with Visa. And I think in Slovenia there is a problem a bit or used to be with uh, Visa. Uh, uh, that over used to MasterCard. be on the past in the, uh, on the ATMs, but that, that is no longer the case. So all major credit cards are widely accepted and ATMs are pretty much uh, it's available. It, you can get by on credit cards everywhere in most of the stores, most of the restaurants. Just use it exactly the same way you use it here in the States. The only recommendation I would have is that when you are in a restaurant, although they do take credit cards, uh, the credit card charges for them are pretty high. So they prefer cash in the restaurants. They won't say it openly, but if you pay with cash, you leave the restaurant and you know you let made these people happier than you would have made them if you paid with a credit card. I think there's people uh, in, in small and entrepreneurial and creative businesses that all over the world that prefer cash. Mm-hmm. And uh, you just put yourself in a more uh, desirable ATMs position. ATMs are almost on every corner. There are ATMs. So just go to an ATM and withdraw what you need to withdraw and just pay with cash. In general, that's smart travel advice. Use cash, Peter, and get it with the ATM. And in Eastern Europe, you've got to change back what you change too much. And that's where you can stand to lose some money. Any other pitfalls for travelers? I think Visa is more widely accepted than American Express anywhere in your travels. Peter, good luck with your trip. All right. Okay, stay Thanks tuned and let us know how your travels break. go. Okay, bye, Peter. In Eastern Europe, there's a lot of, or all over Europe, there's a lot of sensitivity about showing your patriotism overtly and aggressively. People don't wave their flags quite as uh, enthusiastically as we do in the United States. For each of you, Hungary, Czech Republic, and uh, Slovenia, where are you most likely to want to have a flag and wave it. Hansa in Czech Republic. When we win the uh, world championships in ice hockey. In ice the, hockey. When we win. Only the, when we are the world champions, that's the only day that you can go around with a flag and not everyone thinking what the hell you're doing. <laughs> Levante in um, Hungary. In Hungary, it's certain holidays, it seems. Um, it's just not part of the culture yet. Unfortunately, the communists were 
very much against uh, any kind of display of, uh, of uh, nationalism because they wanted to keep these countries as homogenous and boring as possible. It's a new phenomenon, but every time I go, I see more and more flags, and, and I like to see them. And I, I have to say this, I like to see the Czech flags in Czech Republic and Slovenian flags in Slovenia. I don't find it at all scary or, or intrusive. I think it's wonderful that everybody embraces their new flags or old flags and so two colorful. decades, two decades after freedom, people are learning to enjoy waving their flag. Yes. And uh, you said Probably. holidays. What holidays would you wave your flag? Oh, national holidays. National right. holidays. Yes. I think this is very specific to every country. I think that this is where you will find big differences that you can go around and wave flags in Hungary, but in the Czech Republic, people just won't do it and they will really, it, it just, it wouldn't be perceived good. Yeah. I'd love to do a whole other interview on that. That sounds fascinating. And Marjan, in Slovenia, when would you wave your flag? Well, kind of a similar like in the in the Czech Republic. People would not do it on an everyday basis, even on a holiday as much as we just would not really identify with the flag, would even maybe find it somewhat intrusive in that sense. So it, the only time it really does come out is at big sporting events when really major milestones are achieved, let's say in the in- international uh, matches, soccer and uh, you would be proud to display your... Wave that Slovenian flag. That's right. Marian Kriskovic from Slovenia, Levante Naj from Hungary, and Hansa Vihan from Czech Republic, thanks so much for teaching us about your countries. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're going to the former Soviet Union and we're going to visit the stands. Imagine that. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan. We're not going to talk about Afghanistan, but we might get to Kyrgyzstan. Michael Cohn knows how to pronounce all those countries. Michael, (laughs) thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me. Tell me the names of these stands uh, pronounced correctly. Well, the largest of the stands is Kazakhstan. Right. Um, and south of that is Uzbekistan, and south of that is Turkmenistan, and the two smallest republics are Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Now, is this whole area, can it be called Turkestan because they have Turkic languages? Turkestan, East Turkestan is actually a place. Um, it's in China, and it's now called, the Chinese call it Xinjiang, but East Turkestan is, is a province of China. So you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily call the area Turkestan. So uh, most people just call it former Soviet Central Asia. Former Soviet Central Asia. Yeah, and our Lonely Planet guidebook is called Central Asia. Okay, and we can call it the stands because that's mm-hmm. one thing they all have in common. Sure. This is the area that kind of bridges Asia and Europe in a lot of ways, uh, from the Caspian Sea stretching all the way to Mongolia. This is a huge, huge, vast region. Is it all one yeah, high plateau? It's mostly steppe in the north. Um, you have Kazakhstan, which is basically a huge grassy steppe land. And then south of that, you have desert. In Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan is uh, the Karakum Desert and the Kizilkum Desert. And then in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, you have big mountains, the Pamir Mountains, which get up to you know 7,500 meters. Wow. This was former Soviet Union. Is there a lot of Soviet heritage there? Do you see big, blocky, vast buildings and uh, uh, broken-down, lousy infrastructure? Uh, everywhere, yes. That's 
that would be something you would see all the time. And I think a lot of people go to Central Asia thinking they'll find this sort of mystical land of, of nomads and caravanserais and, and the Silk Road. But actually what you see is, is more like an extension of Russia. Uh, the cities are all basically Russian-built. Hmm. Uh, there are a few places that are that are still look traditional, like Samarkand, but the infrastructure is, is still uh, still Russian. So the Russian infrastructure, but we have some of the classic cultural centers. If you want to see ugly Russian cities, I, I guess you could find that in all, all over that part of Asia, but if you want to really find some magical kind of cultural centers, glorious colored tiles and so on in Samarkand, what would you say are the big spots to visit? Well, the Silk Road from that went from China all the way to the Middle East ran right through the Silk Road, and Samarkand was, was the center of, of it all. Samarkand was, and Bukhara were um, the center of, of great empires as well. So you have, these, you have these ancient cities, basically, that have been preserved, and lots of madrasas and mosques that, that are um, you know, 500, 600, 700 years old. In Turkmenistan, a lot of that was ruined by, uh, by the Mongols 800 years ago and, and never really rebuilt. But in Uzbekistan, you still have the great Silk Road cities. So Uzbekistan really has the greatest cities, would you say, from a historical, cultural point of view? Yeah, it's the cultural heart of, of Central Asia, if you're, if you're talking about um, Islamic culture and, and um, Central Asian culture. More just ahead with Michael Cohn about developments in Central Asia, the land of the famed Silk Road and Borat. 877-333-RICK. And by email, contact us at radio at ricksteves.com. Michael Cohn, who writes the Lonely Planet Guidebook to Central Asia, is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And he's getting us up to date on the former Soviet stands. 877-333-RICK. And add your comments on our online feedback forum. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Now, we all know about Kazakhstan because of Borat, right? I'm sure that's perfectly mm. accurate. <laughs> Borat is to Kazakhstan uh, as Homer Simpson is to America. There, you know, there's sort of an, an ounce, I guess there's an ounce of truth in everything, but really it's just a, a big falsitude, and and you can't take it seriously at all. It's it's a joke. Well, the guy, what is the grain of truth in Borat? I, I would say, you know, in Kazakhstan, the the influence of the Russian influence is sort of more like what Borat is sort of playing himself off on. Um, with alcohol and things like that. Sure, that exists. But most of it is, is sort of a big joke. So all the toilet humor, the racism, the uh, alcohol stuff, the, the goofy, wild and crazy guy, that's all just uh, a perverted attempt to show Soviet viewpoint from Kazakhstan? In some ways, it's, he's sort of making fun of the old Soviet culture, and uh, he tries to make fun of... Um, the Islamic attitudes towards towards women, although in fact Islam in Kazakhstan is Kazakhstan. I wouldn't say is the is the most Islamic country in in Central Asia. Okay. So you know that that is not uh, that wouldn't be accurate either. Uh, Michael, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I want you to just give me one catchphrase. I know it's a generalization, but I want to kind of get a sense of what are these different countries relative to each other. How would you sum up Uzbekistan among the five? 
Uzbekistan? Yeah. Uzbekistan is is the cultural center of Central Asia. So you you have to sum it up as being the place with with the art and the literature of Central Asia. Turkmenistan. Uh, Turkmenistan is a desert republic, formerly nomadic, and the people still have this sort of nomadic sensibilities about them, although although people really aren't nomadic anymore. But that culture still exists in many ways, on many levels. And bordering Afghanistan and Iran, it would have more of that kind of desert feel, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Tajikistan. Uh, Tajikistan is, an, is another nomadic country. In some ways, a lot of it looks like Tibet, um, with this high plateau, and, and you have uh, people still living in yurts up on the mountains. Um, it's the sort of the least known of the uh, Central Asian republics. Wow. And Kyr- Kyrgyzstan? Kyrgyzstan is the one that's sort of busting out in terms of tourism. A lot of people there are, are also still nomadic, and it's the one place where tourists can really go and do things like yurt stays and sampling local cuisine and visiting local families. It's the one kind of place in Central Asia where tourism is really, really finding its roots. Sounds like putting Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan together would make some sense. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do that. A lot of people come over from, from China to Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and then, and then uh, move on to Iran or find their way up over to Europe. And Kazakhstan, how would you sum that up? Uh, Kazakhstan, long train rides. It's as big as the other countries put together. It's huge. It's the size of Western Europe, and it can take a couple of days to get across the country on these train rides. The train rides are actually magnificent. You sit on the train all day, and you can sort of stare out onto the steppe, and it's, it's very relaxing. Um, the Kazakh culture has been Russified, so most of it you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't see so much nomadism as you think you might. In Western Mongolia, you would find more traditional Kazakh culture than you would actually in Kazakhstan. So in Kazakhstan, you're going to find a lot of Borats. Uh, you wouldn't. You might meet a Borat, but I don't know if anyone would actually act like Borat. Somebody told me that Turkmenistan is sort of the regional North Korea. Does that make any sense to you? Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Turkmenistan is run by a dictator who likes to build gold statues of himself mm. all over the place, and his portrait hangs on, on just about every building in the country. So traveling around there is a little bit, it's as close to North Korea as you can get without actually getting to North Korea. We have Norman on the line in Ottawa, Ontario. Norman, thanks for your call. Well, thanks very much, guys. A fascinating topic. Many years ago, I read a book by a British diplomat uh, by the name of David McLean, who traveled through that area in the 1930s, and it just... It's always fired my imagination, but how difficult is it in there now to, to travel to cities like Samarkand and, and Bukhara now that it's no longer the Soviet Union? Travel in Central Asia on some ways is getting easier and on some ways is getting more difficult. Turkmenistan, for example, is, is probably the most difficult place to visit because they restrict tourism. They only give out 10,000 uh, tourist visas a year, which is, you know, like Bangkok in a, in a morning. Um, so a lot of tourist applications get rejected from Turkmenistan. The other ones are getting easier, like in Kazakhstan. You don't necessarily need a letter of invitation as you would in, in the other republics. You can just fly right into uh, Almaty and be on your way. Uh, some of the other republics, like Tajikistan, um, you would still need a letter of invitation from a travel agent. But it does take work. You know, you have to reserve like two or three months to actually get these visas all together. Yeah. What about the connections between the republics now? If you're if you're traveling, I guess, uh, by road or, or things like that, how are the transportation links if you're going down into that area? Transportation is actually quite good. Uh, the rail network is very extensive. 
you could go by train from Europe into Kazakhstan, and and uh, the roads are very good in Uzbekistan. You can travel very quickly through there, uh, and then on to Turkmenistan. Also, the roads are quite good. Tajikistan of course, is, is more of an adventure. You would want to hire your own four-wheel drive Jeep and a driver to get up into the mountains. Um, and Kyrgyzstan has, has decent public transportation. But on a whirlwind tour, just getting through there, the transportation links are, are pretty good. Yeah. So, again, as Rick was saying earlier, the Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan with the cities like Bukhara and Samarkand, that would be, I guess, the primary tourist destination if you wanted to see uh, any representation of, of uh, the former Soviet Central Asia? Yeah, if you had, you know, like a 10 or 12 day tour, you would, a good loop would be like Almaty to Bishkek to Tashkent. Tashkent is the capital of Uzbekistan, and then travel on to the historic cities of Samarkand and Bukhara and Kiva. And then if you had a little more time, you could go down through uh, Turkmenistan to the capital, Ashgabat. Wow. Uh, with more time, Tajikistan is really the place where you can get more of a nomadic Central Asian flavor in, in yeah. parts of Kyrgyzstan as well. So, Norman, you've you've dreamed about going to the stands, but you've never been there. Is that right? Not yet, no. It's sort of in the long-term plans, I think. But what is it that's uh, appealing to you in your travel dreams? About probably the, the, the culture, the Islamic culture, uh, the older cities there. And, uh, you know, I guess that's one of the questions you have is do do you still find that sort of thing down there? We're talking with uh, Michael Cohn, who writes with a few other people, the Lonely Planet Guide to Central Asia. And I love this list of pet peeves, Michael. And maybe this will give uh, Norman a little bit idea of what he's in for. Uh, one of the pet peeves is the taste of congealed mutton fat on the roof of your mouth. Mm, I love that. That's one of my favorite experiences in, in Central Asia. Tell me about that. Well, if you were if you were hiking in, say, Tajikistan or Kyrgyzstan, a lot of your meals are probably going to be with a local family. And mutton is the meat of choice, and uh, the more fat, the better. So they, they brew up a, a stew of mutton fat, and um, that's kind of your, your dinner is, is entrails and, and fat and, and whatever else might be floating in the, um, in the pot there. Okay, Uzbekistan high cuisine. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's, you know, cuisine is not necessarily <laughs> the thing that you're going to Central Asia for. Okay. It's, it's, it's nomadic food, you know, it's people, it's the food that they developed from their animals. Like, nomads wouldn't have had time to, to have settled down and had a farm. That's a little bit different in, in Uzbekistan, where there's more of a history of agriculture, and uh, you might find a little bit more variety in, in vegetables in the diet. Another uh, pet peeve, aggressive drunks who think you are Russian. Hmm, yeah, that's... Um, that can be a problem. You know, I think in, in Kazakhstan, when people get drinking after a few shots, they start to get a little bit aggressive. And if they think you're Russian, well, that could be a bit of a problem. But mm -hmm. you have to just yell tourist a lot. So you don't want to be mistaken as a Russian? The Russian occupation there was not always friendly, and people are, are glad to be free of, of Russia, and they're glad to have their independence. And they look a lot to the West. So if you say you're American or, or British or wherever you might be from, they really respect that, and they're glad that you've come so far away to see their country, and there's not really any ambivalence. So although relations with Russia is improving a little bit. Yeah, well, it's just like Eastern Europe. You don't want to speak Russian because you won't get any service if you do. Uh, another pet peeve, the smell of Soviet canteens. That must be a mm. an old Soviet cafeteria. Yeah, yeah. The the cafes are again not not places that you go to for for a great cuisine. Just a lot of boiled mutton and things like that. Okay, Norman, I just wanted to um, give your travel dreams a little variety there, apart from those gleaming mosque domes in the sunshine. Uh, well, I was I was brought up on meat and potatoes, so if I can get that, I'm happy. All right. Hey, good luck on your trip, Norman. Thank you. Norman mentioned, uh, you know, finding the traditional Islamic 
culture and, and the way of life. And really, if you, if you have this sort of idea in your mind of bustling markets and loud mosques and madrasas, Afghanistan is really, really the place that you have to go. Although that's, of course, really very difficult and kind of um, out of the way these days. That sort of the vision that most people have of Central Asia still does exist down in, down in Afghanistan. Huh. So because it didn't have the Soviet overlay. Yeah, the Soviets, you know, they tried to get in there um, back in the 80s, and that, that yeah. failed miserably. But 70 years of, of Soviet influence in Central Asia really changed the society forever. So Now, in 1991, that was the end of the Soviet Union. Did that mean no more money going into the region from Russia, or did it mean no more money leaving the country to Russia from the region? Was it a, was it a plus or a minus when the Soviet Union fell apart economically? Well, in the first years, it was a total disaster. It was like 1929 in the U.S. There was, there was just no more money coming in from, from Russia, no subsidies at all. And these newly independent countries were left to scramble for you know, whatever they could get their hands on. And some of them kind of fell into the NGO loop, like Kyrgyzstan got a lot of humanitarian aid, and, and Tajikistan, after the Civil War, mm. was kind of surviving on humanitarian aid. But you compare that to Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan, which in recent years, they've developed their oil and gas industry. And mm-hmm. there's huge reserves of oil and gas in, in and around the Caspian Sea. So Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan are, are pretty much set for the next 100 years in terms of being financially solvent. Uh, Kazakhstan, actually, the, the GDP is going way up and developing very rapidly. The cities there are changing very quickly. All right. We got Chris on the line in Sunnyvale, California. Hi, Chris. Hello. How's it going? Great. Thanks for your call. Got a question for Michael? Yeah, I'm interested in Uzbekistan, especially Kiva and Bukhara, kind of getting into the old world of Marco Polo and the the Silk Road. Um, But my wife is not exactly the normal planet traveler. I was wondering if there's more mid-level kind of accommodations there and ways for me to take photographs of the uh, city and my wife can be happy as well. Yeah, Chris, there's many B&Bs in Bukhara, and Kiva is well set up for tourism. Actually, Kiva was kind of emptied by the Soviets of of people and turned into sort of an open-air museum. And uh, recently, they, they've installed lots of nice hotels there. And Samarkand also has sort of, they even have four or five-star hotels in Samarkand. Uh, the thing in Bukhara is, is the B&Bs, and you can stay in these, these old homes with a local family. So it's it's well set up for the mid-range traveler, and, and it's not too expensive either. Excellent. What about the uh, government situation in terms of the dictator? Is there any issues for Americans traveling there? Uzbekistan has changed a lot in the last year. In, in Andijan, you, you might remember down in the Fergana Valley, uh, they massacred a couple of hundred people. This was about a year and a half ago. Karimov, the president of Uzbekistan, after this incident got a lot of pressure from the U.S. Um, on the humanitarian rights front. And basically his response was to kick everybody out. So all the NGOs that were doing good work in, in Uzbekistan are basically tossed out, including the Peace Corps. But this doesn't affect normal travelers. If you're, if you're uh, just an average tourist in, in Uzbekistan, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that, that those incidents had happened. And it's still pretty easy to, to travel there, and local people on the ground are still very welcoming. Great. Thanks very much. Good luck on your trip, Chris. Thanks for your call. And we have an email from John in Bloomington, Indiana. Michael John writes, uh, his wife is from Turkmenistan, and he worked there with the uh, Turkmen Language Project to develop a curriculum to teach Turkmen to diplomats. And John asks, how does one deal with the minders assigned to follow you? Do people actually follow you around, Michael? 
Well, in Turkmenistan, the only way to get a tourist visa in Turkmenistan is to be with a guide. So when you sign up, uh, you have to sign up for a tour, and from beginning to end of the tour, the guide has to sign you into the country, and then when you leave, they have to sign you out. It's a little different if you're on a transit visa. If you're on a transit visa, you can travel by yourself. That only lasts for five days, though. What do you recommend? Well, if you want to stay more than five days, um, then you have to get a you have to be with a guide. So these guys shadow you everywhere you go. They're ostensibly sort of private companies. So if you do go with a guide, they are generally open and friendly. Um, they they've probably been instructed by the government to to sort of you know, watch you and make sure you don't ask a lot of sensitive questions and they, right. they kind of prevent you from meeting local people. That's one big problem with Turkmenistan is um, getting to know local people is difficult because you're on this sort of whirlwind tour with this guide who wants to show you the history of the country but has no interest in really introducing you to local people. What's your tip then to really connect with the local people? You could ditch the guide, I suppose, and you know, tell them you want to go out to dinner. They're, they're not with you all the time. If you want to go out on your own in the cities to lunch or, or dinner or stay in your hotel, you can do whatever you want. Basically, they're there to chauffeur you between the cities, and you can, you can skip the tour. Okay, so the minder is not going to crush your independent spirit entirely. No, they don't, they don't like tag on to you all day long. They try to show you around everywhere, but you have the, the freedom and independence to say, I want to be on my own today and walk around. But on the roads, there are every 50 kilometers in Turkmenistan, there is a checkpoint where they check your documents. And if you're not with the guide, you're in big trouble. So that's one of their responsibilities is to get you between the cities. I'm speaking with Michael Cohn, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Central Asia. We've been talking about the Stans, the five uh, states that end with Stan, the Turkic states. These people all speak a, a Turkic language. Is that right, Michael? Yeah, they all they all speak a form of, of the Turkic language. Um, Turkish actually originated from, from Central Asia and, um, and then moved to what we now know as Turkey much later. Is there like a spirit of these Turkic people? I was in eastern Turkey and I found... Uh, some uh, aggressive elements of the Turkic, sort of pan-Turkish movement. They had wolves for their symbols, and I just felt like this is a, a vast group of people that spreads all the way from Istanbul to the Great Wall of China, really. Yeah, I mean, don't forget that this was, you know, these were the hearts of uh, some of the great empires of Central Asia, some of the nomadic empires that ruled even parts of Persia and Afghanistan. Uh, you know, the Mongols came in later and destroyed most of the cities, and then later you have Tamerlane, Timur, um, the great who, who had his capital in Samarkand and did his wave of destruction all over the place as well. So this part of the world has a, has a great history of, of empires and, and warfare, and some of that blood still boils down there. And something else these lands have in common is their Muslim faith. In Islam, a guest is an honored person. Does that have any meaning to the tourist? Hospitality is just a part of their world, and like in Turkmenistan, if you if a guest comes, they are the most important person in the house, and it can be a little awkward for for travelers to be so um, attended to so so carefully, and it can be a little a bit embarrassing, but you just have to understand that uh, this is the way of life, this is their way of life, and and hospitality is is just crucial because back in the old days, if someone was traveling. You wouldn't be able to survive if you had to go from one place to the other without people to help you on the way. So that survives today, and the American visitor exploring the stands of Central Asia will experience that traditional warmth. 
yeah, you you can't really escape it. People are extremely friendly, and American or whatever nationality, people are are welcome in to their country, no matter no matter where they're from. Michael Cohn, author of the Lonely Planet Guide to Central Asia. Thanks for helping us better understand this mysterious and intriguing part of our planet. Thank you, Rick. Thanks very much. Hi, my name is DJ Shaitan, and I'm glad to present the deadly melody of Tajik national music. Some will kind of want to bounce and vibe where you're from, from a countryside. Move your body from a side to side. This is Tajik crimes in the city line with a number one. Why you stay behind, right behind the time. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Milt Wallace at the studios of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for engineering help today. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. You'll find it in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. It's rock and roll. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.